my people came to me, Dan Coates came to me and some others, they said they think it's Russia. Uh, I have uh, President Putin. Uh, he just said it's not Russia. Hello, and welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. I cannot forecast to you the action of Russia. It is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. But perhaps there is a key. That key is Russian national interest. So I didn't use the accent, but that's what Winston Churchill had to say about Russia in 1939. It's a sentiment that remains true today. In recent days, we've seen an antagonistic President Trump taking on America's closest allies in NATO and an accommodating Trump cozying up to Russian President Putin. What's going on? Joining us to talk about these developments is Andrew Weiss, vice president at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. A fluent Russian speaker, Andrew worked on issues relating to Russia and the former Soviet Union during his time on the National Security Council staff as a member of the State Department's policy planning staff and as a policy advisor in the administrations of George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, it's great to be here. Let's start out by contextualizing what we talk about when we talk about Russia. It's the largest country in the world by landmass. It has some massive number of nuclear weapons. And maybe that's kind of it. I mean, this is a country with an economy smaller than that of Italy with a population that continues to shrink year after year. Is Russia really the global player we make it out to be? Or is it just a mischief maker coasting on leftover Cold War notoriety? I think it's a really big mistake to think that you can ignore Russia. Um, its you know, geographic location makes it very significant. Its nuclear arsenal makes it very significant. And clearly the Russians have really consistently, under Putin, uh, learned a way to punch above their weight. So, you know, just looking at the GDP league table really doesn't tell you the story. Right, which is good background on Russia. Now, I'm a pretty active Twitter user, and my Twitter feed basically exploded on Monday as people, American and European, left-wing and right, objected to President Trump's press conference with Vladimir Putin. One of the voices that rose above that maelstrom was that of your boss at Carnegie, Ambassador Bill Burns. One part of his long and distinguished career was when Ambassador Burns served as the U.S. ambassador to Russia from 2005 to 2008. And so it was striking to many when this consummate diplomat was quoted describing Trump at Helsinki as, quote, the single most embarrassing performance by an American president on the world stage that I've ever seen. Does Ambassador Burns's take accord with your own? Yeah, I, I, you know, I'll let him speak for himself, but it's it's hard to expand on what he said. I think any you know serious practitioner of American foreign policy um, of any party um, would be really, really hard pressed to to say that this was normal, and that you know what Donald Trump did in front of the world on Monday um, advances U.S. interests, advances the interests of the Western community that the United States has led since the end of World War II, or represents our values. And I think on all three tests, 
um, it was a, it was an appalling performance. Of course, Trump has said many outrageous things in the past, including previously casting doubt on Russian meddling in the 2016 election and disagreeing with the findings of the intelligence community. What's different this time? Um, I think what's different is that, you know, Donald Trump, you know, continues to basically behave in ways that just don't make sense. And, you know, when he's given a chance to say something like, do you condemn Russian interference? Do you want to make sure it doesn't happen again? Um, He generally just can't deliver the goods. Um, And in front of the world, he is, you know, at pains to talk about how tough Putin is and how persuasive he is um, and basically serve as, as Vladimir Putin's lawyer. Um, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense uh, in terms of all the problems we have with Russia. Um, no one's suggesting that we should be looking to go to war with Russia or that there's a, um, you know, a kind of uh, set of tools the United States has that's necessarily going to be able to turn the Russians off the course they're on. But you know, certainly these are big problems. And if the president were taking his job seriously, he would be trying to manage them. He wouldn't necessarily be able to fix anything, but he certainly would try to, you know, keep things either from getting worse or from basically selling out on, you know, core aspects of U.S. foreign policy. Donald Trump seems to be equipped to do uh, neither at the moment, but seems to be leaning. I mean, I, you know, it's uh, you know, it's still early. He's only been in office for a year and a half toward basically throwing away fundamental aspects of U.S. foreign policy that have been in place in Republican and Democratic administrations. And the upside from doing that is not at all obvious. Um, it's, ob- it's obvious if you buy into Make America Great and all these other, you know, kind of uh, nationalist positions that he staked out as candidate and as president, um, but they certainly don't stand up as foreign policy precepts or as a kind of uh, effective toolkit for managing all the problems the United States faces on the international stage. I think that's the most puzzling thing, right? You know, even if you dismiss some of the crazier, you know, kind of conspiracy theories about President Trump, and even if you dismiss some of the, you know, better founded questions that people raise about his leadership and about his history with Russia, uh, his his reputation is that he is disdainful of the old way of doing things, that he's not afraid to offend people. And he has gone about offending many, many world leaders in Canada, Mexico, Germany, the UK. That might have just been this past week. It sometimes seems like the only person he won't say a bad word about is Putin. Why is that? I think it's a mystery. You know, I really can't come up with a clear answer. There are several theories floating around. Um, You know, there's no doubt that, you know, as a businessman, Donald Trump, you know, has freely admitted that he would like to say very flattering things about the powers that be in countries where he tried to do business. He tried and, and failed to do business in Russia repeatedly. Um, we know from, you know, various other uh, statements that there was, you know, a significant presence in Trump-branded properties by, uh, you know, various types of characters, government shady characters or non-government shady characters or just average folks um, with uh, money who had bought, you know, condos in places like Florida or in New York City. But as a candidate, you know, he just was sort of unabashedly cheering Putin on and, you know, acting as a kind of what they call in German a putin Vesteher, which means a Putin understanderer, um, you know, someone who is, you know, basically, you know, carrying water for the Kremlin. 
Um, why that is happening now as president at a time when there's so much information pointing to the problems Russia's causing in the world is is really, really disturbing. And, you know, I've seen the speculation, you've seen it, that suggests, you know, there's something going on here and that this is, you know, a reflection of leverage the Russians have over Trump. Um, no one knows that for sure, but clearly there's a pattern here of connections and ties that don't look appropriate. Um, there's a pattern of statements that are certainly not appropriate, and then there's a pattern of actions which are not appropriate. What the recourse is to manage the implications of that is, is still, you know, something that we as a country are trying to work through. But it's, it's, it's incredibly disruptive. Um, it's disruptive to our allies. It's disruptive to professional people uh, working in government. It's just a very, very difficult, unprecedented situation. Um, and I don't see easy remedies, frankly. You know, it looks like we're, we're you know, going to be sort of mired in, uh, you know, just a very divisive, highly polarized domestic political environment for the you know, foreseeable future. I don't really see how we get out of, of the mess we're in. In this most recent indictment from the Mueller probe, the timeline of how the hacking of the DNC servers took place became a little bit clearer. And one of the things that came to light is that it seems like it was just the day after President Trump said on national television, you know, Russia, if you can find those missing emails from Hillary Clinton's private email server, everyone would be glad to see what's in them. I'm I'm paraphrasing. Um, It was just the day after that Russian intelligence services began their work on getting those emails. What should we make of that? And then also more broadly, how should we understand Russia's cyber warfare capabilities and what implication they have on the United States? I think that the chronology you're talking about got a lot of attention. I'm not totally sure I see causality there. Um, You know, the Russian government uses cyber tools for espionage and to push its political agenda and to create um, or exploit divisions um, the world over. And that's that's sort of now, I think, a pretty well-documented pattern. And the Mueller uh, indictments from last week, you know, add to that picture. They have really great uh, forensic information explaining how all of this was done. But if you'd been reading the materials and all this rather closely over the last couple of years, you know, there wasn't a ton in it that would, the general outline that would surprise you. Um, as far as the, um, the Trump-Russia uh, connection goes, you know, there was a major breakthrough, I think, where uh, for the first time um, in the United States, documents uh, started being poured into the public domain and either given to third parties like WikiLeaks, or which which is alleged in the the Mueller indictments of the twelve GRU officers, or um, that were were basically parceled out um, either on mass or uh, on a more selective basis to men- members of the the news media. And some of that uh, has happened before, never on this scale, but it really is a kind of breakthrough in Russian tradecraft in terms of trying to use, you know, information that normally would be collected for espionage purposes and then kept within a government to be analyzed and exploited for a variety of purposes to, you know, basically a tool of political warfare. And that's what's new. And I think, you know, there's a really, I think, serious question about, you know, how do you defend yourself? Um, it's a lot easier to play offense in this game. You know, there are going to be plenty of iterations in the future, presumably, where in the United States or in other countries, politicians who have dirty laundry or 
uh, high-profile private citizens who have dirty laundry are going to see it uh, pushed out in a similar fashion if there's a political purpose that uh, could be advanced in terms of what the Russians are up to the world over. Um, and then there's going to be a lot of copycat stuff. So what the Russians have done here, I think, is audacious. It's incredibly uh, disruptive. But it's not a, a, a one-and-done phenomenon, if you, if you know what I mean. It's not something that's going to go away. This is going to be a persistent problem. And that's why when you talk to Western policymakers, the focus has always been on resilience, like what can you do to shore up your societal capability to not be as vulnerable to these kinds of uh, external efforts to destabilize uh, your politics. And that's a really hard challenge. And I think we in the United States, we're a very big country. The media is very segmented. There's a lot of mistrust of elites. There's a lot of uh, polarization. All of that creates huge openings, not just for the Russians, but, but for any number of foreign adversaries to exploit. Now, turning to NATO and Europe, there's this ongoing saga in NATO of how much the member states pay for defense. Basically, in 2014, NATO states pledged to spend 2% of their GDP on defense spending each year by the year 2024. The thinking is that if each of the countries are militarily strong, no one country bears too much of the burden in their mutual deterrent and defense against Russian aggression. Now, that's a good thing, I think, but barely a handful of the 29 NATO countries meet that 2% threshold today. And President Trump, like presidents before him, has made that an issue, saying that they owe the U.S. That's a little weird. There is not some payment that these countries are behind on. That's not how NATO works. And last week, he basically demanded that they raise their defense spending to 4%, which is significantly higher even than what the U.S. spends on defense. The immediate criticism was that President Trump was once again casting doubt on the value of NATO. NATO doubting is definitely good for Russia, but if President Trump actually succeeds in goading NATO members to raise the defense spending to 2% or even higher, that would be pretty bad for Russia, right? I think you're, you're probably looking at this through the wrong part of the telescope. Um, Donald Trump has tried to present an argument to the world that, you know, the United States, but for our no good allies, um, you know, we'd be a lot more prosperous or a lot safer. And there's this great moment in one of his recent uh, campaign-style appearances where he said, sometimes our biggest enemies are our so-called friends and allies. Um, And I think that kind of states pretty clearly how he looks at the world. Mm-hmm. Um, the United States has always had to bear a disproportionate burden in terms of our defense spending and the role we play for sort of safeguarding security in various parts of the world um, because we were the, I think, disproportionate beneficiary of the system that was set up after World War II and then advanced after the end of the Cold War. It was largely in the U.S. interest to uh, perpetuate that and delete it. Um, Donald Trump has now kind of basically said, this seems like a big mistake and is basically badgering and hectoring the people who are our closest allies, people who, you know, in any uh, you know, moment of real crunch or danger are the ones that will sign up to, to share risks and, you know, take risks with the United States. We saw that after 9-11. We've seen that in other situations. So, to think of it all as a question of, you know, who's spending what um, kind of misses the point about what the system as a whole, the alliance system, is supposed to do for the United States. And, you know, my boss likes to say it's, it was set up out of enlightened self-interest. It's not like we don't benefit from it. But it's certainly not a dollar and cents thing where you can point to how much defense, uh, how many defense dollars are in each uh, country's budget. 
we have a free rider problem. We have it in the Middle East. We have it in Europe. We have it in Asia at times. Um, that's a, that is an issue that I think makes American presidents very, very frustrated. Um, but there are ways to manage that, and there are ways to kind of coax people into being more cooperative. Donald Trump has not gone down that road. What he's basically done is, you know, has, uh, has lit into some of our most important allies, like the Germans. Um, there's no doubt that Germany could be spending a lot more on defense. There's no doubt that the German military capabilities have atrophied considerably. And that's a common pattern across Europe. A lot of that is something that the governments themselves are starting to reckon with in the wake of Russia's aggression in 2014 in Ukraine. But, and this is sort of the key but, the Europeans invested, particularly the Germans, a huge amount of political, emotional, and economic capital in setting up the European Union and to kind of working together as best they could on global issues. And what Donald Trump has basically now said is that that's an, uh, a hostile organization and that, you know, the Germans don't uh, you know, see eye to eye with us on important issues. So at a time when we've relied on the Germans to help constrain Vladimir Putin, Donald Trump is doing the exact opposite and basically driving countries like Germany away. It doesn't make any sense. It's exactly backwards. I, I have to say, Andrew, that when you mention free riders, it brought a smile to my face because I was remembering those quaint days when President Obama telling Jeffrey Goldberg, quote, free riders aggravate me when that was considered, you know, a kind of a major blow up on, uh, on the world stage and, and undiplomatic language for a U.S. president to use. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, I specifically have Obama in mind when I said it. I, I really think this is a, 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 a constant concern, but not something that would lead to the response that, that Trump has embraced, which is to basically try to blow up the arrangement, um, which the U.S. is the you know un, un, you know how do I say this uh, you know un, uh, unquestionably one of the biggest beneficiaries of. Well, last week when President Trump was asked who America's main foes are, the first one that came to mind for him was the European Union vis-a-vis trade. As a leading Russia expert, would you say that Russia should rightly be considered our number one foe? I think that our country has big challenges, and Russia is among them, but it's not, you know, it's not a question of who's on top. It's really a question of how is this president going to manage a world where the great powers are increasingly in competition with each other, and by that I mean Russia, China, um, uh, uh, some players like uh, India or uh, Europe, they're all kind of, you know, the areas where our interests align, the areas where our interests are in competition. Um, there is uh, obviously a huge reallocation of global power that's underway, where the U.S. relative economic, military, and political power is shifting relative to other rising powers, such as China. Um, there is no doubt there is a germ of populist nationalism that is now infecting the United States. It's infecting governments around the world, but particularly in Europe. Um, there's no doubt that there's sweeping technological change, and we see all of these phenomena unfolding, and you see also the, the shockwaves coming out of a badly broken and dysfunctional Middle East. All of these things are going on all at the same time. Um, that, to me, if, if anyone were honest, are, that is the landscape that, that U.S. foreign policy has to start from and the reality that U.S. foreign policy has to be grounded in. Donald Trump is living in a kind of parallel universe where basically if you walk into every room as if, um, you know, the United States is bigger and a you know, potential more persuasive bully, it buys you a certain amount of, you know, either 
deference or folks are reluctant to you know, challenge you head on, but it certainly doesn't lead to a more stable or predictable world. The United States certainly benefits from predictability and stability around the world um, and should be working in that spirit. You know, Donald Trump is, is doing as much as he can to be this big global disruptor and thinks that you know, he can you know, basically bully people into doing his bidding. It's, it's, a, it's a foolhardy approach. One of the few positive takes on the Helsinki summit came from Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who issued a statement applauding what he called, quote, the abiding commitment of the U.S. and President Donald Trump to the security of Israel. Prime Minister Netanyahu has made frequent trips to Russia in recent months, including just last week, to discuss the presence of Iran in Syria. Is President Putin the key power broker in Syria today? And what is his long-term strategy in the Middle East? I think there's no doubt that the Russians are the ones with the Iranians who are driving events on the ground in Syria and that the United States role is pretty limited. Um, Donald Trump hasn't disguised his desire to get out completely. There are parts of the U.S. government which are trying to rein that in and to sort of persuade him that there's important work to be done and that there's a threat of ISIL reconstituting or other issues that might make it worse for us to leave than to sort of stick it out uh, for the nearer to medium term. Um, the Israelis have their own concerns, which are uh, separate and apart from the United States, that I think largely center on how Iran may seek to capitalize on the vacuum as, uh, as the Assad regime uh, you know, basically reasserts its control, especially in areas that once had been part of uh, the ISIL caliphate. Um, the United States and Russia seem for the time being, and, and I can't remember whose memorable phrase this was, but you know, I think it was um, Aaron David Miller, that you know, they're casting a blind eye, basically, on things the Israelis are doing, where the Israelis are attacking um, uh, Iranian uh, missile sites, they're attacking places where drones are deployed, and they're trying to push uh, Iranian proxy forces and uh, aligned militias further back from uh, southwestern Syria. Um, that all sounds to me like a, um, uh, uh, in an adverse, unpleasant environment, kind of the best, the, you know, the best you can hope for. Um, more broadly, though, it does require a big leap of faith. And, you know, the United States, which has been, you know, overextended in the Middle East for the past 17 years, in the wake of 9-11, um, has been rebalancing. That's created a series of vacuums in the Arab Spring and all the instability that resulted from it have created a lot of regional conflicts and a lot of tensions in places like Syria and Libya or in Egypt that are, you know, unlikely to be resolved anytime soon. But, you know, the question is who fills those vacuums? And as the United States backs away, um, countries like Israel are going to have to deal with the Russians more and more because the Russians seem pretty eager to fill some of these vacuums. Um, the Russians don't bring the same capabilities to the region that the United States did. They're not really uh, uh, capable of writing big checks. They're not really capable of providing uh, security in a significant way. But it does seem like Israel and some of the Gulf Arab monarchists are all looking to Russia as a potential partner and are going to try to you know, find a way forward with them. Um, the Russians feel relevant in a region where they've largely been uh, kind of not very central um, since the late 1980s um, and are trying to sort of capitalize on that wherever they can. Um, it, you know, in the case of Iran is probably where it gets the stickiest, and we can talk about that more. 
Um, but, you know, up to now, the Russians are largely pushing on open doors or dealing with regional powers that are kind of, you know, excited to have uh, to deal with them and, you know, are happy to deal with them without a lot of uh, concern that the United States is going to come down on them harshly for doing that. Andrew, for my last question, I just want to turn briefly to the World Cup, which ended Sunday as President Putin bestowed medals on the winning French team in a very rainy Moscow where he seemed to have the only umbrella in sight. The Russian team, despite being, I think, actually the lowest ranked team that made the tournament, actually made it into the quarterfinals and was kind of the Cinderella of the tournament. What did you make of Russia's role as host? Was this a very shrewd and successful PR move by Putin? Oh, yeah. I think the Russians, you know, they do big and splashy events well. The Sochi Olympics uh, were a good example of that. There's a, a personal kind of economic motive for people who are well-connected around the Putin entourage to support these kinds of activities because they all get the contracts to build these giant facilities and other infrastructure. You know, there's a lot of money that changes hands. Um, so it's a, you know, it's a, it's a win. It's also a win in terms of, you know, being on the world stage and kind of looking like a normal country where, you know, obviously it's not North Korea. And if you, you know, I mean, to give the Russians some credit, you know, there's a lot about sort of day-to-day life in Russia, which doesn't match the media portrayal. Um, so I think it's, you know, it's nice to see people going to Russia and seeing what a lovely place it is. Um, and that, you know, it's, you know, an exciting, young, and, you know, different kind of Russia um, than the one that I grew up with, you know, in the 1980s. Um, but, um, you know, the political lasting implications of this, I think, are likely to be marginal. Um, you know, Russia's uh, behavior on the world stage is the central question. It's not like how good a party they can throw. There's no doubt they can throw a really good party, but but the course they're on, the kind of behavior they're constantly resorting to, um, really makes Western policymakers feel quite on edge. Um, I don't expect that to change. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us and for shedding some light on a very complicated part of the world stage. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Just hours before we recorded this segment, the Knesset, Israel's parliament, passed a new basic law, the nation-state bill. Despite criticism from diaspora Jewish communities, Israel's attorney general, and even Israeli President Ruvain Rivlin, the bill passed with a vote of 62 to 55 in the 120-person legislative body. We'll include the full English text of the bill and AJC's critical press release in the show notes. Joining us once again on AJC Passport is Dr. Steve Baim, director of AJC's Contemporary Jewish Life Department. Steve has devoted decades of his career to better understanding and promoting relations between the Jewish state and American Jews. Steve, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks. I was always taught growing up that Israel was the Jewish state. Was that not true? Or uh, put another way, why does Israel need this bill? Well, Israel does not have a constitution. Uh, That's unfortunate. It's been a subject of contention for about 70 years now. Uh, If it had a constitution, without question, it would say Israel is the nation state of the Jewish people. Uh, In the absence of a constitution, Israel has 14 basic laws, which essentially uh, set down the ground rules of how the nation state operates. There is no uh, basic law that guarantees the Jewishness of the Jewish state. However, uh, the Jewishness is expressed 
First of all, through the law of return, which basically says any member of the Jewish people has immediate citizenship on coming to Israel. And secondly, the way society works is that uh, without question, uh, the, uh, the flavor, the character of the, of the ethos of the society is unmistakably Jewish. That relates to language, relates to calendar. Um, and in that respect, I don't think it was in question. Uh, what drove this bill, though, was the sense that um, uh, first post-Zionists uh, want to redefine Israel as a state of all of its citizens. So in that respect, that was one of the concerns, that will the post-Zionist vision that redefines Israel as simply a collection of, of citizens without any particular Jewish character. Reality is, though, post-Zionism has been in retreat for the last 15 or so years, really, since the collapse of Oslo. So in that sense, it should not be a major consideration. It's found among a few Israeli intellectuals and some American Jewish sympathizers. Then, of course, there is the Arab minority, which would like to redefine Israel as a binational state. Um, uh, is that a critical consideration? Again, you're talking about 20% of the population. And frankly, one of Israel's strong points is that it is guaranteed the rights of minorities. So in that respect, AJC decided that this bill was totally unnecessary. And in that respect, though, what's driving it is that uh, there is no basic law, per se, that guarantees the Jewishness. I mean, Steve, you know, you said it yourself, right? Israel's language is the Jewish language. Israel's calendar is the Jewish calendar. And I'll go further. It's it's a Jewish flag. It's a Jewish anthem. You know, so I really am at a loss here. You know, why pass this bill? Is is this the Israeli edition of the particular flavor of, of nationalism that's that's sweeping Europe and, and to some degree the United States as well? Well, again, let's, uh, let's get our facts straight here, Sefi. Um, the bill originated in 2011. In other words, it didn't start yesterday. Originated in 2011. Its main sponsors at that point was the Yeshatid party. Um, or, I'm sorry, the Kadima party. Um, a key member of the Kadima party, Avi Dikter, has since joined the Likud. I don't know if Kadima even exists at this point. And he is now picking up that, uh, uh, those cudgels of defining Israel as the nation state of the Jewish people. So the idea has been around, and nor was it exclusively a right-wing idea. So I wouldn't say it's part of the overall shift towards populism that has taken place internationally, as we all well know. I'd say the idea has been there. Uh, there is concern that uh, the idea of the nation-state of the Jewish people is an idea that is under attack. Um, again, a reaction here is that the attack is um, – the fears of the attack are overblown, that uh, Israel's Jewishness is, un, is unquestioned. Uh, Israel is – claims to be both Jewish and democratic and that frankly is enshrined in the, uh, uh, in the basic laws. So in that sense, the bill is totally unnecessary. However, there are concerns about what I call post-Zionism, concerns about attempt to redefine Israel as the nation state of all of its citizens. You're witnessing a backlash against that. You can say it's fed uh, by the greater rightward shift within Israeli society, and that obviously is part of a, uh, a larger rightward, po more populist shift in, in, uh, on the international scene. Uh, but that's one of the problems that American Jewry needs to confront in terms of relating to Israel, that American Jews by and large are bought into a liberal consensus. Uh, they, their values tend to be liberal and universalistic. They have difficulty with an Israel that is becoming increasingly conservative, particularistic, religious, uh, quite literally as we speak. And that's really the, the long-term danger of a chasm between Israel and American Jewry over the shift of values, one group becoming more liberal and universalistic, the other becoming more conservative, religious, and particularistic. Well, Steve, you said that democracy is enshrined within Israel's basic laws, this kind of pseudo-constitution that the country has. But this 15th basic law made no mention of democracy. What happens if two basic laws are in contradiction of one another? 
Well, first of all, again, what makes it a bit worse is that uh, there is also the Israeli Declaration of Independence, which guarantees the right of all of its citizens. Had the had the draft of the nation-state bill cited or invoked the Declaration of Independence, there would be less concern uh, in terms of preserving the Jewish democratic character. Uh, were there to be an actual conflict, it would be up to the, uh, the courts to implement. Uh, right now, again, there is no real danger that the court is going to uh, abrogate uh, democratic freedoms. However, again, if you're looking at a society that is in flux uh, as we speak, I'd be concerned about the years ahead. Now, the headlines leading up to the passage of this bill focused a great deal on uh, one particular clause that ultimately didn't make it in. That was the provision that could have made it legal to have Jewish-only communities in Israel. That is to say that before moving into a particular town or municipality, it would have been legal to screen and say, you know, oh, are you uh, Jewish or are you Arab or are you, frankly, even other kind of, uh, uh, of discrimination? That's not in the bill at all. Is that correct? Uh, essentially, uh, um, Minister Bennett and Prime Minister Netanyahu basically reached an agreement that um, the idea of uh, enshrining that in law would not be part of the bill. In place of it, they put in a clause saying encouraging Jewish settlement throughout the country. That certainly could be interpreted along those lines. Um, it's a softer version. Uh, again, many of us be concerned about it because it seems to give encouragements the idea that uh, uh, only Jewish settlements should be created. Um, I also have uh, said uh, internally here at AJC that um, uh, the primary agenda behind Minister Bennett is um, to encourage the building of settlements throughout the West Bank. Uh, and in that respect, by dropping the clause about specifically Jewish communities and rather only encourage Jewish settlements, uh, I think to some extent it gives license the idea that uh, the right to settle is an unlimited right anywhere in the historical land of Israel, which again, in principle, one might, one might agree with it. The issue is the wisdom of implementing it because every settlement makes a two-state solution one step further away. During deliberations, specifically referencing that exclusionary clause, Israeli President Ruvain Rivlin had some very strong words to say, as did the Attorney General of Israel, as did the Knesset's legal advisor, as did many members of civil society. President Rivlin warned that the bill could harm, quote, Jews throughout the world. What did he mean by that? How could a bill like this affect diaspora Jewish community? I think the image of the Jewish people um, primarily remains an image of, of a, a people that believes in democracy, a people that is uh, um, uh, open and tolerant for a wide variety of different expressions. Um, when he said this may harm the, the Jew, Jewish people worldwide, he was not specific. What I think he meant was the image of Jews in Judaism internationally. Um, take American Jewry, for example. American Jews are the most esteemed minority within American society. That means people respect American Jewry for its place in America, for its values, for its teachings, uh, for its educational system. All those things are, are beautiful components of what make the American Jewish community tick. American Jewish community is also defined by its close alliance and support for Israel. Uh, for Israel to take this step could damage the position of Jews in Judaism internationally. I just want to very quickly touch on a couple of other issues that hit close to home just this week as well. The first is this bill banning surrogacy for LGBT couples in Israel, that they uh, can't have a surrogate give birth to a, to a child for them. That was connected in some way to the passage of this bill. Is that correct? Uh, look, Israel has a, uh, a very complicated coalition, coalition politics in which uh, different groups raise different issues at different times. 
seen in large, Israel is considered, I think, the most uh, accepting of gay and lesbian uh, uh, presence within Israeli society. And frankly, the gains made by the gay and lesbian community in Israel over the last decade or so have been, frankly, uh, quite impressive by any score of the imagination. At the same time, there obviously is a backlash. Now, we saw more militant forms of the backlash and attacks on the uh, gay pride parade, including a violent attack a number of years ago. Thankfully, that was condemned by most of the leading rabbis at the time. But there is a backlash of uh, people who say Israel's become too liberal with respect to gay, to gay and lesbian, lesbian rights. So this issue of, uh, of surrogacy, um, I think it's tied to this larger question of um, uh, there are a lot of people who uh, recognize that Israel has become more accepting of homosexuality uh, than any other, play, any other society in the Middle East. But they're also angry about it because it contradicts their uh, their Jewish traditionalism. But frankly, I'm always I always recall the uh, speech Ahmadinejad uh, of Iran gave at Columbia a number of years ago, where someone asked him about homosexuals, and he said there are no homosexuals in Iran. Um, by comparison, Israel comes across as the main democracy in the Middle East, and that really should be applauded. And the last thing I want to touch upon is the arrest or detention this morning, the bringing in for questioning. I don't know what the precise legal term is of Inter- rabbi. Interrogation. Interrogation. Mm-hmm. Thank you. The interrogation this morning of uh, Rabbi Dubi Chayun, a conservative rabbi, or in Israel they call it Masorti, a Masorti rabbi in Haifa, uh, in Israel's north, who was committing the crime of performing Jewish weddings outside of the auspices of the ultra-Orthodox controlled chief rabbinate. Can you tell us anything about that? Sure. Look, again, uh, instinctive, instinctive reaction is that this is outrageous. Uh, and it was hardly robbing a bank. And it, was, it hardly rises to the level of criminal activity. Um, Israel has problems in terms of its marriage laws. And one of its marriage laws forbids marriages between different categories, uh, such as a, uh, a Kohen, a person of priestly descent, and a divorcee. The most extreme of these— This is, this is Jewish lawyer. That's right, about. exactly. The most extreme of these laws is the one that forbids any kind of marriage uh, between a mamzer, an offspring of an adulterous union, um, and, uh, and someone else who is not a mamzer. And that's what seems to have taken place here. Uh, the rabbi in question had been performing these marriages um, outside the parameters of the chief rabbinate for decades. So had plenty of other people, including Orthodox rabbis. Uh, it seems that in this case, the rabbinical court reacted strongly because it's probably the first time he did this with someone who uh, came under the classification of mamzer, um, a bastard child, child, an offspring of an, of an, of an adulterous union. In other words, that was, in effect, crossing a line that had not been, not been crossed earlier. That said, you know, bear in mind, number one, there's a problem with the law itself. In other words, the law essentially is a taboo from a millennia ago, and the idea that it's operative in the 21st century, frankly, is quite, is quite jarring. Second, even assuming people want to obey the law, there should be the option of marriage outside the chief rabbinate because the chief rabbinate should not have a monopoly over marriage. So in that respect, what the conservative rabbi was doing is that technically any marriage he performed is illegal. None apparently had risen to the level of uh, calling him in for interrogation. And the interrogation, thankfully, was canceled in terms of uh, uh, next, next week. So in that respect, I think people realized the boundaries were overstepped. Uh, the police were responding to an order or request from the rabbinical court. Uh, the rabbinical court essentially had gone where no rabbinical court had gone before, essentially. That said, I really want to say two things, Sefi. Number one is that um, – uh, the rabbi did respond over uh, his, own, uh, his own website or, or email by saying, Iran is currently here. 
this is hardly like Iran. In other words, sure, there are major problems in Israeli society, but it doesn't rise to the level of being Iran. The second point I would make is that um, uh, we need to continue working, as we have been here at HAC and the Jewish Religious Equality Coalition, create a broad-based coalition advocating for civil marriage. In that respect, the rabbi would have been forming a marriage, again, outside the parameters of the chief rabbinate, but performing a legally recognized alternative to the chief rabbinate. Right now, there are no legally recognized alternatives, and that's what we have to work on. Well, but but Steve, I think we like to think of Israel as a secular democracy with a Jewish flavor, now a officially legally stamped Jewish flavor. But when police, you know, that is to say the secular police force of the country is pulling a rabbi out of bed at 530 in the morning on the orders of a rabbinical court, that doesn't sound very secular to me. Uh, you have got a, got a very good point, and so that's why I say the whole thing is quite unsettling, jarring, and in many ways quite outrageous. I, I don't think anyone should be disputing that. In other words, it should not have happened. It did happen, and uh, everyone should be, should be protesting it. I'm uh, suggesting that where it's coming from is this monopoly the chief rabbinate does have legally over marriage. Technically speaking, the rabbi was committing an act of civil disobedience. It's an act of civil disobedience that I embrace and support. But the price of an act of civil disobedience is that you do have to be willing to, uh, uh, to face arrest. And uh, in that sense, uh, I think he knew what he was doing. Um, it was more, even more unsettling. It was done so early in the morning. He was probably getting, getting out of bed at, at best. So the handling of it may have been poor. But uh, without question, the, uh, the performance of these non-chief rabbinate marriages, which again is, are widely performed not just by conservative reform rabbis, but also by politicians, by, by celebrities, and by frankly, by a good number of orthodox rabbis, realize that they are acts of civil disobedience. Uh, Martin Luther King taught us many years ago, the price of civil disobedience is the willingness to face arrest. If you're not willing to do it, don't engage in civil disobedience. Well, Steve, your work in ensuring more avenues for Jewish expression in Israel became all the more important today. Thank you so much for all that you do and for sharing your insights with us. My pleasure, Zephi. Thanks. Now it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? Tisha B'Av. Good for the Jews? Beginning on Saturday night and continuing through the following 25 hours, Jews around the world will mark the fast of the ninth of the Hebrew month of Av, called Tisha B'Av. While the other major Jewish fast day, Yom Kippur, is the holiest day on the Jewish calendar, Tisha B'Av is the saddest. That's because of the litany of catastrophes that have befallen the Jewish people on the day. The Babylonians destroyed Solomon's temple in Jerusalem on Tisha B'Av. The Romans destroyed the second temple on Tisha B'Av. Ferdinand and Isabella expelled the Jews from Spain on Tisha B'Av 1492, and World War I began on Tisha B'Av, setting in motion a chain of events that led ultimately to World War II and the Holocaust. So how could Tisha B'Av be good for the Jews? This historic perspective that the day gives us, it grounds us. This attachment to our people's history, it inspires us. This reflection inspires us to avoid the mistakes and the tragedies of the past and to aspire to be our best selves as individuals and as a nation. 
The things that happened on Tisha B'Av have been some of the greatest tragedies in the history of the world. But Tisha B'Av's messages and what we take away from our mourning, well, that just might be good for the Jews. You can subscribe to AJC Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at AJC.org passport. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at passport at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Alex Zeldin. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC Passport.